In our first two episodes, we discuss some key connections between the Merry Wives of Windsor and the rest of Shakespeare's canon, such as how the figure of Falstaff ties this comedy to the history plays, and how Ford's jealousy anticipates later romances and tragedies. In the following speeches, we'll hear those connections through Falstaff's comic self-reflection and Ford's angry unravelling. Finally, in the confident self-assurance of the older, married, middle-class women at the centre of this play, we also hear what makes Merry Wives so unique. Dr Will Tosh, Research Fellow and Lecturer at Shakespeare's Globe, guides our discussion. Our first speech comes from Act 2. Suspecting that his wife is carrying on an affair with Falstaff, Ford has disguised himself as Master Brooke and gone to Falstaff to investigate. To test his wife's loyalty, he offers money to Falstaff to try and seduce her. Falstaff tells him that he already has a plan to visit Mistress Ford at her own invitation. Ford's reaction to this news when he is alone reveals how, in this comedy, Shakespeare is already exploring the disturbing psychological processes that will drive some of his later tragedies. What a damned Epicurean rascal is this! My heart is ready to crack with impatience. Who says this is improvident jealousy? Hmm? My wife hath sent to him. The hour is fixed. The match is made. Would any man have thought this? See the hell of having a false woman. My bed shall be abused. My coffers ransacked. My reputation gnawn at, and I shall not only receive this villainous wrong, but stand under the adoption of abominable terms, and by him that does me this wrong. Terms, names, oh, a Maimon sounds well, Lucifer, well, Barbason, well, yet they are devil's additions, the names of fiends, but cuckold. Whittle! Cockled! Oh! The devil himself hath not such a name! <sighs> Page is an ass! A secure ass! He will trust his wife! He will not be jealous! <laughs> I will rather trust a Fleming with my butter! Parson Hugh the Welshman with my cheese, an Irishman with my aquavitae bottle, or a thief to walk my ambling gelding than my wife with herself. Then she plots, then she ruminates, then she devises. And what they think in their hearts, they may affect. They will break their hearts, but they will affect. Heaven be praised for my jealousy! <laughs> Eleven o'clock the hour! I will prevent this! Detect my wife! Be revenged on Falstaff and laugh at Paige! <laughs> I will about it! Better three hours too soon than a minute too late! <laughs> fie! 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 Cuckold! 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 So that's Ford's response when he's finished speaking with Falstaff and Falstaff confirms, you know, what, what were his fears and says, yes, I am, I am going to go and kind of seduce your wife. And the kind of the build up to this speech actually is, is one of the more disturbing and unkind and unsettling 
acts of assault, I suppose one would have to call it, in Shakespeare, where Master Ford presents to Falstaff as a sort of tactic that if Falstaff goes and woos Mistress Ford, who Falstaff at this point doesn't know is Master Ford's wife, then that loss of reputation will give Master Brooke kind of power of blackmail over Mistress Ford and then she'll sleep with him. And all of this, of course, is made up because it's Master Ford, not Master Brooke, under the disguise. But again, there's that sort of glimmer of a kind of much more horrible play and a much more horrible sexual politics that doesn't get explored fully in Merry Wives, but is in other plays of the time and by other playwrights, you know, um, Women Beware Women, A Woman Killed With Kindness, these plays that really kind of delve into the really ugly underside. It's not even really an underside side of early modern sexual patriarchy and the experience of women caught in that net. So that's the sort of setup to this speech. And of course, what Ford realises once he's allowed this to kind of run on is that he's also kind of embroiled himself in Falstaff's world, which he doesn't, who, who could want really in, this, in, in these terms. And whatever else has happened, he's kind of, he's made himself a cuckold. This is a kind of mess of his own making. And again, I think we're seeing in Ford and Ford's language, Shakespeare's sort of first essay in how you depict the unspooling jealous mind and what happens linguistically to the individual who has been caught up in that kind of terrible spiralling horror and what happens to their sort of intellectual abilities to kind of trace through logical trains of thought and basically it all goes to pot and I you know later on we're going to see this in Othello whose ability to kind of hold it together gets destroyed by Iago and that leads to those sort of terrible eruptions of words goats and monkeys we see it in Leontes in, in the winter's tale where it takes the form of like unbelievably complex and hard to follow syntax and really sort of sort of extreme and hard to read metaphors and images uh, and here with Ford we get at this beginning of it there's that point where Ford says terms names you know words of things that just kind of pop into his brain and he mentions these devils Amiamon, Lucifer, Barbathon but actually what he's thinking of and what he then lands on is cuckold and whittle which means the same thing cuckold simmers in his brain to such a degree that that's what he then breaks out with in the final line of that speech. He's lost the power of, of expression. It's just fi and cuckold. Fi, 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 cuckold, cuckold, cuckold. And fi, you know, modern actors never know what to do with fi. And, I mean, it's it, it, it's just another word that begins with F, you know, like, that we would probably use today. Like, it's it's that. It's, you know, when when you reach for that word... It's because it's the only word that will express your rage and frustration. And that's what's happened to Ford's language ability. It's been kind of decayed by this terrible sort of fear of cuckoldry that he's, he's, he's produced for himself that will generate this sort of appalling jealousy. Our next speech comes from Act 3, after Falstaff accepted Mistress Ford's invitation to her house. The wives' plan to punish Falstaff worked perfectly. He was carried out of the house in a basket of laundry and dumped into the River Thames. 
Falstaff's reflection on this experience encapsulates many of the traits that make Falstaff such an enduring and endearing comic figure. Have I lived to be carried in a basket like a barrow of butcher's offal and to be thrown in the Thames? Well, if I be served such another trick, I'll have my brains torn out and buttered and give them to a dog for a New Year's gift. Splad. The rogues slighted me into the river with as little remorse as they would have drowned a blind bitch's puppies, fifteen of the litter. And you may know by my size that I have a kind of alacrity in sinking. If the bottom were as deep as hell, I should down. I had been drowned, but that the shore was shelvy and shallow. A death that I abhor, for the water swells a man. And what a thing should I have been when I had been swelled? <gasps> by the Lord, I should have been a mountain of mummy! Part of the cultural interest of this scene comes from the particular form of punishment. Just as Slender and Dr Caius were tricked, finding that the girl they eloped with was actually a boy, the male character of Falstaff is tricked in ways originally applied to women. So there's sort of all sorts of really interesting feminist and queer kind of threads that can be pulled and teased out of Merry Wives of Windsor. At the end of the play, the two unsuccessful wooers of Mistress Anne Page come back on stage in high dudgeon with a boy each, saying, this isn't the woman I was promised, I have almost married a boy. And also queer theorists who think about the sort of transgressions that come out in the play, such as Falstaff being humiliated in a kind of Chiarivari kind of way, so he's dressed up as an old woman and beaten. A Chiarivari, also called a skimmington, was a public shaming ritual designed to punish women who hit their husbands. In one form, a man dressed in women's clothes would beat another man as a ritual recreation of the wife's unruly violence. In Merry Wives, this form is reversed when Falstaff, dressed in women's clothes, is beaten and punished. A more official legal form of punishment was the cucking stool, used to chastise scolds, women who were deemed so troublesome and verbally violent that they broke the public peace. Such women could be placed on stools and dunked several times in water. Falstaff undergoes his own cucking when he is thrown into the Thames. In this scene, what makes this violent punishment comic is the way Falstaff describes it. So like the Falstaff in Henry IV Part I and, and, and Part Two, the, the, the narrating Falstaff is often the most enjoyable kind of Falstaff. You know, the Falstaff who we see storytelling about his own experience. And this, I think, is a good example of that, that we've seen on stage Falstaff being carried out in the back basket and there's been great comedy that's sort of drawn from that scene, although not, you know, largely not involving Falstaff because he's hidden himself in the basket by that point. But then here we get the sort of story of that experience and it's surprisingly detailed and sort of also rather pathetic in the sense of pathetic in a good way you know we kind of feel the pathos of what Falstaff has been through and you kind of feel sympathy I'm, I'm sort of I slightly hesitate to say it but the sort of grotesque the grotesqueness of that experience carried in a basket like a barrow of butcher's offal and to be thrown in the Thames. And Falstaff sort of figures himself as a really pathetic figure here. You know, he's like a sort of blind puppy being drowned. In, he over-exit, 
considerably because he says, you know, I'm so big and so fat, I'm, you know, of course I'm going to kind of sink like a stone. Falstaff's size is one of the things that make him funny to other people. The characters around him love to mock him for his fatness. A hodge pudding, a bag of flax, a puffed man, cry the Windsor citizens at the end of this play, just as Prince Hal in Henry IV calls Falstaff this bed-presser, this horse-backbreaker, this huge hill of flesh. But Falstaff also gets a laugh by making fun of himself. When Prince Hal tells him to put his ear to the ground, Falstaff replies, Have you any levers to lift me up again being down? In this speech, too, it is his own reflection on his girth that generates some of his funniest lines. You may know by my size that I have a kind of alacrity in sinking. It, it so happens that, you know, Datchet Mead is like some sort of boggy hole that's not, he's really not going to drown, you know. So, so we're told that, you know, the shore was shelvy and shallow. So he's fine. You know, he didn't die. But it was certainly a kind of miserable experience. And that way that Falstaff has is sort of talking through his own kind of outrage and trauma in order to make it seem much worse is something we'll get again in this play after his experience dressed as the old woman of Brentford. And it's something that we've seen in earlier iterations of Falstaff in the history plays. For example, in Henry IV, part one, when he comes back from his humiliating experience on Gad's Hill at the hands of the prince and points it in disguise and spins the most ridiculous yarn about the number of thieves that he saw off before uh, he escaped. Those thieves are in buckram. This was a buck basket, all sorts of connections. And that is the kind of comic centre of, of Henry IV, part one, is this sort of elaborate Falstaffian narration, false narration of his experience. This is a slightly a kind of, slightly sort of uh, shorter, more kind of sitcom-y Merry Wives version of that. But we still see that Falstaffian, that Falstaffian mode of fake narration coming out. This speech of Falstaff's also epitomises the linguistic style of Merry Wives. Written almost entirely in prose, this play features little of the poetic blank verse that we normally associate with Shakespeare's style. Each character speaks in their own style, in colloquial, conversational language, marked by their own distinctive idioms. Polyglot is a term that, that the critic Cathy Schrank uses about Merry Wives, and I think it's a really good one because it not only points out the number of languages, uh, actual different foreign languages that are present in Windsor, but also that sense of very vivid idiolects that characters possess, whether they're accented, like Caius and, and Evans, or just particularly stylized, like Falstaff. Those characters are really identifiable. One of the things Shakespeare is doing is exploring this idea of multiplicity of language and background and people, and allowing Windsor to be this real melting pot of individuals from all over the place. Our final speech comes from Act Two, back when the plot against Falstaff began. Mistress Page has just received the letter from Falstaff professing his love and proclaiming sympathy between them because they both are merry and love to drink. Mistress Page's reaction is wonderfully comic, especially on stage, but it also calls our attention to the serious social issues raised implicitly by this comedy. What, have I escaped love letters in the holiday time of my beauty? And am I now a subject for them? <laughs> Let me see. 
what a heritage of jewelry is this? Oh, wicked, wicked world. One that is well nigh worn to pieces with age to show himself a younger land. What an unweighed behaviour have this Flemish drunkard picked with the devil's name out of my conversation that he dares in this manner assay me. Why, he hath not been thrice in my company. What should I say to him? I was then frugal of my mirth. Heaven forgive me. Why, I'll exhibit a bill in the Parliament for the putting down of men. How shall I be revenged on him? For revenged I will be, as sure as his guts are made of puddings. Here we really, we get a wonderful sense of Mistress Page and perhaps lots of women of Shakespeare's time, both fictional and not, finally getting their say. You know, that sort of sense of a woman who just won't have it when it comes to sort of men of a certain age and class trying it on and thinking that they're allowed to they're allowed to do what they like. I think it's really interesting that, that Mistress Page and Mistress Ford are presented as women into their middle years. They've got grown-up children, or certainly Mistress Page has, and we're told here that she's sort of passed that kind of point of being open to love letters from, from, from men in the holiday time of her beauty. And I think her rage that comes out, I think it really is rage. You know, it's, it's obviously, of course, it's easy to play the scene for laughs, and, and usually people do. But I think it's worth looking at Mistress Page's language and the frames of reference that that she uses, you know, she really is cross about this invasion from from Falstaff. Wicked, wicked world, what herod of jewellery is this? Describes Falstaff as a sort of, uses uses a, a kind of clothing metaphor to say that he's well nigh worn to pieces with age, pretending to be this, this sort of young gallant, He's a drunkard, and he dares in this manner assay me. And I think that dare is really powerful as well, because Mistress Page is not paying any attention to the fact that Falstaff is allegedly a knight of the realm. She's not paying any attention to the fact that in another universe he was, you know, prison buddies with the Prince of Wales and in with the court. That is neither here nor there as far as Mistress Page is concerned. This is just outrageous and it offends her own sense of identity and decency. And we get a kind of glimmer of something in that wonderful final closing line where she says, well, why, I'll exhibit a bill in the parliament for the putting down of men. It's great. It's funny. It, and it touches on this, the beginnings of this debate in the 1580s, 1590s into the 1600s, where there is a kind of articulation of proto-feminism from women writers who begin to draw attention to the fact that English law and society is grotesquely patriarchal and grotesquely unfair when it comes to women's rights. And obviously a language of feminism and women's rights postdates this era, but the feelings that generate those political changes don't postdate this era. They are there and they come out in proto-feminist writing from women writers such as Jane Anger, that might be a pseudonym, who were writing in the kind of years around and after Mary Wives of Windsor 
about the kind of terrible unfairness of women's legal positions and the kind of various the sort of debates that this generates, both for male and female writers, comes to be called the, the querelle des femmes, which is, I suppose you'd call it the kind of woman question, if, if that wasn't a term that's used in the late 19th century for the same kind of issue. But it's the sort of early modern equivalent of it. And it's not something that Shakespeare engages with overtly, really in in his work it's it's something that the theater the theater does a little bit there's a play called Swetnam the woman hater a few years later that is a sort of dramatic riposte to a a, a prose pamphlet by a writer called Thomas Swetnam uh, a misogynistic pamphlet by by Swetnam but i think we're seeing a little kind of glimmering here of Shakespeare's sort of awareness of that as at least a kind of political or kind of philosophical ethical idea that actually do you know what? It, there is going to come a time when when women assert their legal rights and it will involve bills in Parliament and it will involve people like Mistress Page who know what's what and are kind of willing to stand up and do something about it. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. This episode featured performances by the following actors. Amanda Harris for Mistress Page. What have I escaped love letters? Adam Courting for Ford. What a damned Epicurean rascal. Stephen Leesk for Falstaff. Have I lived to be carried? For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Marjorie Garber, Shakespeare After All. Natasha Korda, a Modern Perspective, The Merry Wives of Windsor. Mihoko Suzuki, Gender, Class, and the Ideology of Comic Form. Much Ado About Nothing and Twelfth Night. Brian Weiser, The Shamings of Falstaff. And the following editions of The Merry Wives of Windsor. The 1999 Arden Shakespeare, the 2011 RSC Shakespeare, and the 2016 Norton Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more about the show by visiting shakespeareforall.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.